Good morning. Uh, thank you, Pastor Jerry, and for everyone who make this possible, and also for the subject. The subject is a very needed subject for, to address. How would Jesus vote? Or how would our Lord Jesus vote? What perspective would he have on the political scenery of today? Um, under this heading, we will cover five major topics. Under this heading, five major topics. In this first session, we'll be covering the topic related to what our relationship, Christians' relationship is to the people of the world and into the, in, in society and in the government. Should Christians have any ethical expectations of unbelievers? If so, what are they and why? Should we have any ethical, moral expectations or standards that we expect unbelievers to follow? Yes or no? And we'll cover that in our first session. The next session today will be, can I just be left alone to play on my joystick or my controller, play my games and, and do my hobbies? Is engagement, is social engagement, is active engagement necessary for the sake of the gospel and our families? Yes or no? That will be the second session. The third session, are all evils the same? Is there anything, is there any truth to the lesser of two evils? Is that biblical? Is that right or not? We'll cover that in the third session. And in fact, in the third session, a part of our topic will be to address the current political options that we have in the United States and the candidates that we have. And then fourthly, tomorrow morning in the first hour at 9 a.m., we'll cover, is it the government's job to provide rationed peanut butter and diapers? In other words, what is the purpose of government? What is the basic fundamental purpose of government from a Christian perspective, not just a Christian because based on our first session, we'll see it's not just a Christian concern, but a worldwide concern, whether Christian or not. And then in the fifth session during tomorrow's worship service, is government supposed to protect Christians? And I say this specifically of Christians. Are they supposed to protect Christians? If so, if they are to protect us and not harass and persecute us, to what end? If they give us the freedom to worship, the freedom to behave and believe as Christians, then to what end are we supposed to use that freedom that the government provides for us? And we will see, and that is to preach the gospel and live the simple, quiet life for the sake of Christ. That is the reason why. Okay, so that's what we have coming ahead. And also this afternoon after the third session, there will be a few minutes for questions. Now, re resuming back to our first topic. Should Christians have any ethical expectations of unbelievers? If so, what are they and why? When we cover this subject and all these subjects, the first thing we have to clarify is that when we're asking how would Jesus vote, we have to ask, well, where did Jesus address these topics? Where did Jesus speak on the subjects that we are about to address? Because some people think that we can only consult Christ, our Lord, in the red letters of our Bibles, in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Some people say that if we restrict ourselves to Christ and what he thought of government, we should restrict ourselves to the red letters. And yet, the people who promote that don't actually do that themselves. They say we should, 
and then they go elsewhere, even into the Old Testament, to prove their points. They wrongly try to prove their points, but they don't stick with the words of Christ. Furthermore, if we were to stick to the words of Christ, the red letters, we could show that they have misinterpreted those words. In fact, they have ignored many of his words that contradict their worldview, contradict their values, and what they expect of society and government. And follow, uh, a following point on that is these people know this very well. They say we should restrict ourselves to the red letters to silence us so that they can have the loudspeaker, they can shout and scream and repeat whatever they want to repeat and say whatever they want to say. They say, let's stick to the red letters, but they really don't believe that and they don't practice that. Furthermore, another issue that comes up when we ask about Christ and voting is some Christians think that this is a taboo subject. We should not address this subject at all. There are two subjects to avoid at all costs, religion and politics. Avoid these subjects, religion and politics. Actually, that is deception from the world, the flesh, and the devil to avoid these two subjects because these are the two most important subjects in all of life. Religion. Why are we here and where are we going when we die? The gospel of Jesus Christ provides the right, truthful answer to that question. And then secondly, if that is the case, how are we going to practice it? How is it going to manifest itself in our day-to-day -day activities? And inevitably, politics, government, that has a bearing, that subject has a bearing on how the Christian life is displayed. So we should not concede and say this is a taboo subject. We should bring up this subject all the time, whenever we can, whenever we should bring it up. Another problem when we face this subject is some people say that uh, we shouldn't uh, do this and they make us afraid. They intimidate us. They threaten us. They threaten our jobs. They threaten our, our income. They threaten our families. They threaten our houses. They threaten our physical well-being. They, they threaten to murder us. They do this, and they do this in the name of Christ, saying this is the way of Christ, when actually it's not. But we should not fear their intimidation, 1 Peter 3. And finally, they say in objection to this subject, Jesus only cared about the gospel and said nothing about politics. Jesus only cared about the gospel and he said nothing or spoke nothing for us to obey concerning politics. That's what they say. Actually, they are wrong. They are wrong both in the red letters of Christ but they're also wrong in the rest of Scripture. That is not true at all. He did address politics. He did address how our Christian faith should be manifested in the world. Furthermore, let's establish our source of authority. Our source of authority is not a famous pastor, not a famous scholar, not a famous book, not some organization. Our source of authority is the Holy Word of God, the Word of Christ in the Bible. We have to go there and correctly interpret the Bible before we can have anything to say to anybody. We have to go there first and foremost. Firstly, let me establish that 
whatever is in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation has Jesus' perspective. Whatever is in the Bible, in the whole Bible, Old and New Testaments, from the books of Genesis all the way to Revelation, anything in the Bible is, in fact, the Word of Christ, the mind of Christ, and can inform us as to Jesus' view, Jesus' perspective on how we should vote and the way we should look at the world in every way possible. Why do we say that? For one, 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Verse 10 says, the prophets, meaning the prophets of the Old Testament. And who was in them? Verse 11, the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit was in the prophets. And this Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. So if the Spirit of Christ is in the prophets of Christ, proclaiming Christ, then Christ, his mind, is revealed in the words of the Old Testament prophets. 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. There are also the prophets of the Old Testament did not contrive and concoct their own views. They wrote what the Holy Spirit moved them to write. And the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Peter 1.11, is the Spirit of Christ. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. We begin now to include the apostles of the New Testament. 2 Peter 3.1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. That's a way to summarize the Old and the New Testaments. The prophets are the prophets of the Old Testament, and the apostles are the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we have. So whatever the apostles write in the New Testament, the black letters, according to our English Bibles and the editions we have, whether red or black, it doesn't matter. It is the authority of Jesus Christ in those words. 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3, and we continue at the end, and we start at verse 14. 3, 14 we here must include the Apostle Paul, since Paul is the target of much hatred and animosity, we have to include Paul as an authoritative writer of Scripture. 3.14, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, just as they do the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest, being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The, the Apostle Peter commends to us our beloved brother Paul. He had wisdom given him. That means wisdom from God. And if we misinterpret Paul, we are untaught and unstable because we are distorting Paul just as we would be distorting the rest of the scriptures, which means Paul's writings, his letters are scripture. And if we distort Paul or the rest of the scriptures, we do this to our own destruction. We have to be on guard because these men are not cute and lovable, adorable, famous celebrities that we should emulate. They are, in fact, unprincipled men who will lead us to destruction. They like to say about everything, it's a gospel issue. It's a gospel issue. Why are they hijacking the gospel by saying this or that is a gospel issue? In fact, we have to recover the gospel and show that they are misinterpreting the gospel and they are misapplying the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. From these words, therefore, we should consider every word in Scripture to be the word of Christ, inspired by the Spirit of Christ. Now, let's look in particular to the words of Christ. First, from Luke chapter 20, a few examples of the words of Christ, the so-called red letters. Luke chapter 20 and verse 19. Luke 20, 19. And the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. And they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement, so as to deliver him up to the rule and the authority of the governor. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose head and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people, and marveling at his answer, they became silent. Now, they tried to trick him, but Jesus answered in verse 25, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. He is not by this saying that there is a wall of separation between church and state. He's not saying it in that sense. He is saying that Caesar has authority to do certain things, but God also has authority to do certain things, and Caesar is actually obligated to God. Caesar has his sphere of influence, but it must be done righteously and properly in his sphere of influence, and that's why he collects taxes. By the way, even though it doesn't say here how much in taxes, we could make an economic and political point on taxes by saying, the wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. Now, that is meant to be wisdom and foolishness, and I'm just tongue-in-cheek saying, 
that if you have less taxes, the better for the people. But it's actually a biblical principle because in Nehemiah chapter 5, 14 to 19, Nehemiah chapter 5, 14 to 19, Nehemiah, the governor, the governor of Judea, he is explaining there that the previous governors laid heavy burdens on the people, taking taxes or revenues or products from the people, exploiting them, and creating misery for the people because they took away from the people more than they should have in revenue, taxes, products, produce of the land. They took more than they should. So it's never right to take more than we ought in reference to taxes. Furthermore, Luke chapter 22, more words of Christ. Luke 22, 24. Luke 22, 24 to 26. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you, but let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the servant. What do the kings of the Gentiles do? They lord it over the people. They, they create burdens for them that they cannot bear, and they are doing wrongly. We as Christians should not do it ourselves, but we should not even think that it's okay for the kings of the earth, the rulers of the earth, to do that to the people commonly under their authority. We have an example in 1 Kings chapter 12. Remember what happened to Rehoboam? Rehoboam, when he became king, the son of Solomon, he had a choice. Some of the people approached him and said, listen, your father Solomon laid heavy burdens on us, lessen our burden, and we will be your servants. We will be in subjection to you. Everything will be fine in your newly established kingdom. However, he did not take their advice and, and instead said that he would make it even worse for them. He's saying that my little finger is thicker than my father's loins that it was going to be even harder on them. And what happened? There was a rebellion and the kingdom was divided, never to be united again. There is an example that we should not lay heavy burdens on the people. Furthermore, John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verse 11. Where does government's authority originate? Who gives government their power? John 19, 11, Jesus answered, speaking to Pilate. Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Yes, Pilate or Caesar, they have a realm of authority. They have certain prerogatives and certain abilities, certain obligations for the people that they are supposed to conduct. But when they are out of line, they need to be reminded that you are in authority because God puts you there. Even the pagan polytheistic Pilate or Caesar or whoever it is, they are put there because God put them there. If God put them there, our God, not their idols, but our God put them there, therefore they need to be in subjection to what our God says about their authority, about their rulership. 
we have to inform them of that, just as Jesus did. Did he not say it straight to Pilate's face? So we should do the same. One last example from the words of Christ from Psalm 2. Psalm 2. The words of Christ and even the words of God the Father. Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is quoted in Acts chapter 4 for further study and reference. Acts 4, 23 to 31. This is clearly about Jesus Christ. Psalm 2 is clearly about Jesus Christ, not King David, according to Acts 4, 23 to 31. Now, Psalm 2, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ, meaning Jesus Christ. And what do they say? Verse 3 is their words, the words of the wicked. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, that is, the father said to the son, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. These kings, rulers, peoples have to do with the Romans and the Jewish authorities, according to Acts chapter 4. The Romans are unbelieving pagans, idolaters. They don't believe and know the truth of the gospel. At least most of them do not. In the first century, they did not. The Jewish authorities, they knew more of the scriptures, and they were held to greater account for what they knew and rejected. Both groups are here in Psalm 2. Both groups. Those who have access to the word and those who do not have access to the word. And what are they both expected to do? Verse 3 they are expected not to tear the fetters or cords of God. They are in, in, instead expected to be in subjection to God and His Christ. They are expected to obey God and Christ in verse 3. And furthermore, what is it that the Father gives to the Son? It says in verse 8, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession, and He will judge them. Crush them, break them as earthenware. Pottery is crushed when it is shattered and smashed. Verse, verses 10 to 12, who is supposed to listen to the words of Christ? It says in 10, kings, in verse 10 also, judges of the earth. Not just in Israel, but throughout the world. They are supposed to pay attention to what the word of Christ says. And they are supposed to worship him. They are supposed to believe in him, take refuge in him, because the Son of God will punish these rulers of the earth if they don't repent and believe in the gospel. So if they have to repent, what are their sins? What are their crimes? What are they that we have to 
preach to them or show to them that they better repent of their evil deeds or else Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, will punish them on the day of judgment. Believe now or perish. These are Jesus' expectations. So Jesus was not completely devoid in any way of speaking about politics or concerned about politics. He was very much concerned about politics. Now, having established that, some will say some objections to us expecting others, us Christians expecting unbelieving people in the world to have a standard, expectations, some morals, some ethical standard. They say it's wrong. They say it's not right. For example, Anabaptists, and there are still a few today, Anabaptists, arose in the time of the Reformation, the 1500s and so forth. They at least became very popular at that time. And some of them exist today, such as in the form of the Mennonites, the Mennonite denomination, the Mennonites from Menno Simon. Um, others that have a similar view are the cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses. These people, Anabaptists of various stripes, specifically the Mennonites, Jehovah's Witnesses, and others, all of these claim to be Christian, and all of these claim to say, we should have nothing to do with politics. Politics is dirty, let me wash my hands, and let me go and do whatever I want to do, and have nothing, do nothing in politics. Others among Christian uh, denominations and theologies believe in seclusion, believe in seclusion, that we are not going to be informed, we're not going to do anything, we're not going to understand anything, we're not going to expect others to live up to the standards that we have. That's wrong and that's evil, we're not in a position to do so. Others will say, we're not supposed to judge, right? Don't judge. The moment you say something contrary to the popular uh, mantra, to the propaganda, they say, don't judge. Who are you? You're arrogant to cross us or contradict us. Do not judge. Others will say, it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. You don't know my heart. It's a heart issue. You don't know my heart. So why do you have any grounds? What authority do you have to say something about what I think and believe? Actually, it's not just a heart issue, and they know that. Because it shows itself in their actions. It manifests itself in the things that they do, the things that they believe and condone as good. It shows in their behavior. Others say, you can't legislate morality. You can't, legis you can't make people behave a certain way. Well, of course you can. That's why we have laws. Laws are moral. Laws are moral or ethical statements. They are either moral or immoral, right? That's the way laws are. They are either moral or immoral laws, ethical or unethical laws. If we cannot legislate morality, why in the world do we have laws, a judicial system? Why do we have anything if we cannot legislate? Of course we can legislate. It's absurd. And then finally, we often hear, don't shove your religion down my throat. Don't shove your religion down my throat actually means I have a religion and a philosophy that I want to shove down your throat. That's what it really means when they say, don't shove yours down my throat. What we are about to see is that some of the things that 
should be understood by everyone, these are the things that we need to preach and tell people and inform them. It's a gospel issue. Romans 1. Romans chapter 1. We'll begin at 116. We'll go from 116 to 216. And this section of Romans, we all know in any cursory study of the Bible, the Apostle Paul is outlining or detailing, uh, outlining and detailing the many sins of mankind. Not just the sins of the Jews, but the sins of all the nations of the world. That is indisputably the context of what Paul is describing in Romans 1, specifically 1.18 to 2.16. He is explaining everybody's common sins. Every nation, every tribe, every family, it doesn't matter what language you speak, it doesn't matter who you are, male or female, it doesn't matter. He's describing everybody's sinful nature and sinful capacity, sinful actions. He is explaining that here. Now, if he's explaining it here, we have to ask, um, why is he explaining it, and what is it, its relationship to the gospel, right? Now, if he's saying that we are all criminals, we are guilty before the judge of heaven, then when we read these words, are we not supposed to, therefore, explain this to others as preparation for them repenting and believing in the death and resurrection of Christ? for the forgiveness of sins? How can we preach the gospel unless part of that preaching is to explain to people that they are lost, that they are depraved, that they are under the judgment and wrath of God? We have to say that first. Otherwise, what's the point? Why is it good news? It's good news because there's a way of deliverance from it, right? So, in this preaching of the gospel, we have to understand the sins of the people and explain it to them. This means the apostle has an expectation that the people in a self-evident, innate way, natural way, should know that these are wrong. He's going to explain that they know that it's wrong. Everybody knows that these sins are sins. Now, in philosophy and theology, this section of Romans is identified as natural law. Natural law. And philosophy and theology makes, his, makes its way into politics, and even political writers and theoreticians, academics, will speak of natural law. There are some things that are natural and known, innate, to everybody, and therefore, it's good and right to have laws that manifest those beliefs. They all know that. Even unbelieving people know that. Many nations of the world know that. So what is it that the Bible says everybody does know and should live up to? Romans 1.16. Is this a gospel issue? The first two verses, 16 and 17, say yes. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. He says it's the gospel right there in verse 16. He's about to explain the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There we have that 
proof that he's writing about Gentiles and Jews. He's writing about Greeks, and he's writing about barbarians. He's writing about Jews. He's writing about all kinds of people, not just one group or one ethnicity or those who have access to the Bible. We are all needing this gospel. But if we're going to believe the gospel, what do we have to first know about ourselves? Verses 18 to 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Let's keep reading. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. God's wrath is against mankind, everyone, every human. Why? Because he says we, in verse 18, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Suppressing truth is active. It's conscientious, right? It's knowingly doing it, willfully doing it. We suppress the truth. Verse 19, because that which is known, he doesn't say could be known, he says it is known about God. Everyone knows about God. And he says it's evident Within them, it's evident inside of us, evident, self-evident. No one needs to teach a child that God exists. We do teach that, but it should be innate. It should be self-evident that God exists because God made it evident to them. Now he makes this assertion that God made it evident to them. If God made it evident to the unbeliever, to the pagan, to the idolater. If he made it evident to them, then if they deny it, who's telling the truth and who's lying? God's telling the truth and they're lying. Verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, through the creation, so that they are without excuse. Verses 18 to 20, and even into 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. This completely eliminates agnosticism. Well, I don't know if God exists. And it eliminates atheism, that there is no God. Whoever says to you that they are agnostic or atheistic, if they say that to you, they are lying to you. Because the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit of Christ and the Word of Christ, tells us they do know, they know full well God exists. So either God's telling the truth or they are telling the truth. Who are we to believe? We are to believe God. This means that there is no place for communism. No place for communism because embedded in communism is atheism. Karl Marx sought to undermine faith in God. He sought to undermine faith in God, among many other things. Therefore, no Christian should 
cozy up to anything that has the scent or the taste, the aroma of communism. Whichever label we want to use, communism, fascism, Hitlerism, Nazism, Marxism, Leninism, Stalinism, Maoism, there are all kinds of names, even progressivism or liberalism. These are sugar-coated words. Progressivism and liberalism and socialism, these are more sugar-coated words for the, basically the same thing. There's no need to wrangle about words and mince words. These are various vocabularies that they have concocted to deceive the people. And therefore, no Christian should have anything to do with those philosophies, political ideologies, nothing whatsoever, because their aim is to undermine God and specifically the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then he proceeds in verses 24 to 25. He summarizes what he is about to say. 24, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their heart to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. In 24, he's speaking of the moral law, the moral law, and with one example of sexual sin. And in 25, he's speaking of the first part of the moral law, the theological part of the first four of the Ten Commandments, Worshiping an, an idol. Verses, verse 24 is the last six, in a sense. He's addressing the last six of the Ten Commandments. And verse 25, the first four of the Ten Commandments. Now he proceeds to show us how it manifests itself. Notice there, in 24 to 25, the Apostle Paul expected the people of the world to understand that their crime against the judge of heaven, their sin, has to do with breaking the Ten Commandments. That means the unbelieving world knows it's self-evident that they need to obey the Ten Commandments. So we should be able to point that out to them and say, you're not living up to this standard. An obvious one? Who can deny you shall not murder? Correct? Now, I know that people misdefine, wrongly define murder sometimes, but if murder is, let's say, uh, two 30-year-old men have a dispute. Let's say they are drug dealers and there's a dispute. If one murders the other or kills the other in that dispute, we would call that murder. And right, most places in the world would, would be appalled at that and the authorities would seek to investigate that and arrest and prosecute that, right? That's murder. That's a part of the Ten Commandments. It's self-evident. Why is it that Hindu nations and Buddhist nations, even communist nations, why is it that these nations do that, act on that kind of murder? They do it because it's self-evident. It's a part of the Ten Commandments. Now let's proceed. 26. 26. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Here he describes homosexuality or sodomy. Notice in verse 27, 26 and 27, he uses this word natural and unnatural. That which is natural 
This is one of the reasons why it is known as natural law. That unwritten law on the human heart tells every one of us that it is natural for a man to marry a woman and to have a family that way and to stay permanently married until death, right? It's natural to know that and understand that. It's unnatural for a woman to be with a woman and a man with a man. Here he says, it is not, he says, it is indecent and they, these people receive the due penalty of their error. He says it's self-evident. You don't really have to teach. You don't have to teach unless somebody's being bombarded with lies and propaganda from society that a man marries a woman. You don't have to teach that. It's self-evident. And here he sa says that people who reject that which is self-evident, innate, they are the ones who are doing this sin against God. 28 to 32. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. The apostle says, all of these sins are self-evident because there in 32 he says, they know the ordinance of God. They know the law of God. They know the rules of God. They know it. And even though they know it, they not only practice them and know it's worthy of death, but they see other people and they egg it on. They encourage it on. They say, yeah, go ahead. Because it makes them feel better if someone else is doing it. If they are sinning, they want someone else to sin. So that everybody's sinning together and there's less guilt. There's less guilt to assuage. But they know it's the law of God or ordinance of God. And they know they are worthy of death. Chapter 2, chapter 2, therefore you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who pra uh, judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things, that, and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the, patience, uh, the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. He's speaking of judgment. And he's saying in the first couple of verses of this chapter, 
you rightly know, you full well know that there is going to be judgment. He knows, he know, he's saying to them, you know that there is going to be a day of judgment. We're not here just to be here and to disappear once we die. We're going to meet God one day, and you know that. He's telling everybody, everybody knows there is a day of accountability, a day when God will examine their deeds on the earth. Even unbelieving or false religions know this. That's why they all, in one sense or another, have a day of judgment. Islam has a day of judgment. In Hinduism, there is, in a sense, judgment that is through the reincarnation process, depending on your works now, then you will come back in a different form in the next life. So in that sense, there is an assessment or accountability, a judgment made of how you live this life to determine how your next life is going to be, and so on. Religions have this embedded in their thinking. Not all correct, but they have some idea of judgment. That's his argument in 2, 1 to 11. If that, that's his argument, this is what we need to tell others. You better be ready for that day of judgment. Everybody, even unbelievers, need to be ready for that day and repent. Further, 12 to 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. If we have the law, then God will judge us by the law, the written law. But if we don't have the law, what will happen to people? The written law. He says in verse 12, All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All those who never hear of the gospel will perish without this written law of God, the gospel of God. They will perish. But having said that, then he goes to the internal law. The internal law, verses 14 and 15. The internal law, he says, notice these key words, 14. When Gentiles, not Jews who have the Bible, Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. Instinctively, this innate knowledge we have of what's right and wrong, we are a law to ourselves. We don't absolutely need it written or somebody to speak it to us. It's inside of us. It's instinctive. Verse 15, he calls this law written in their hearts. Written in their hearts. Those are the Ten Commandments that they know are true. Written in their hearts. It's in their conscience, he says. Their conscience bears witness. 15, their thoughts. Their thoughts alternately accuse or else defend them. These are the various ways, he says, that every human, every single person knows the difference between right and wrong. It's inside their 
conscience. It's in them. It's in their heart, written in the heart. Therefore, these are the expectations we should have. I know that this is very contrary to what people say today. No, you can only talk to Christians this way. No, not according to the Apostle Paul. We are supposed to talk this way, explain this to everybody, and to expect them to know and act accordingly. Therefore, if the Bible says idolatry is a sin, a crime against God, then we should promote the avoidance or the prohibition of idolatry. If the Bible says that homosexuality is wrong, a sin, then we should promote those laws that prohibit homosexuality, and so on, right? This is the way we should be, because unbelievers do. They are expected to hold a standard. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you'll give us true knowledge of these issues. And we pray, Lord, not only will we have this true knowledge, but have us, give us faith and conviction to believe these and to proclaim them. May we not be cowards looking after the flesh, looking after our own uh, notoriety, the praise of men, flattery of men. May we not fear man, but fear God. May your church, your Christian church, be faithful until the very end. In Christ, amen.